Welcome back to the Autoblog Podcast. I'm Greg Migliori. Joining me today is news editor, Joel Stocksdale. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the Toyota 4Runner. Joel drove one that was quite colorful from what I've seen on socials. I drove the uh, 2022 GMC Sierra AT4 with the Eco Diesel. So it is actually a lot of fun, kind of like a little bit of a monster truck. That one is like a kind of Christmassy holiday red. So Staying with the color stuff, and let's see what else do we have here. The Hyundai Palisade long-term update, that is more of a drab shade of kind of blue. Break down some news for you this week. BMW's final V12 rolls out this year. Bollinger shifts to commercial strategies, and we're going to talk about the upcoming Toyota Sequoia. So with that, let's bring in Joel, Mr. News Editor. How are you? Doing all right. Cool, man. So uh, yeah, let's just jump right in here. Forerunner. Break it down for me. What did you do? Which trim was this? So it's the new Toyota TR Toyota 4Runner TRD Pro. Cool. And this particular one was kitted out with a bunch of TRD dealer accessories. Um, one of the first ones that stood out to me when it arrived, other than the <clears throat> electric metallic lime green paint job, which I'm a huge fan of. It looks awesome. And uh, it arrived on a very snowy day, and so it really popped against the uh, the white snow on the ground. Um, but one of the first things that I noticed was that it had a bug and rock shield on the hood. And gosh, I, I think it's probably been about 20 years since I've really seen cars running around with bug shields on the front. I, that's just one of those accessories that I just I don't see anymore. Um, I was kind of surprised. Uh, it also had the big tubular um, cargo rack on top that makes it look expedition ready. Uh, in the back, it's got the slide out tray to help you load up items into the back. And the worst part of all the TRD accessories on it was the TRD exhaust. And this is the second time that. I've had a Toyota 4Runner with the add-on exhaust, and it's awful. It's so bad. It's, it was bad the last time I had it. It was bad this time that I had it. It is something that you should try and avoid at all cost. Because the thing about it, it sounds like someone took a Sawzall and took the muffler off the back of it. It's this low droning nasty v6 noise it's really unpleasant and it's quite loud um and even like cruising on the highway it it gets drony it's not it's not pleasant <laughs> it's interesting because i would agree with you it's been a while since i have driven the forerunner with the trd exhaust but i have driven one i can kind of vividly remember like whew, this is a few years back but it just it kind of looked, I mean, it does look old school and then it sounds just like rough. Like, you know, I remember driving it and uh, a couple of passengers were like, this sort of feels like we're driving a 1990s SUV in every way, how it looks, just the general vibe and how it sounds. And that was not a compliment, the TRD exhaust sound. So, um, yeah, it's pretty wild. I'll say this, I'm, I'm pretty jealous, a TRD 4Runner. It's a lot of, there's a lot of fun things going on there. That's one of those crossovers, SUVs that when you drive it, it's like, it's fun to drive. You know, it's almost like playing with cars, you know, as a kid, you know, you're like, 
it's just it's a fun thing to do. Um, how how are you feeling about the forerunners driving dynamics? I drove one last summer, and it was exactly what it it's always been for me. Uh, I don't know if anything's changed for you, but not really. I to be honest, I think I have changed more than it has. Um, because I used to not be a big fan of the way it drove, um, but I've I've kind of softened up a little bit on sort of the old school SUV vibe, um, which I, it, having purchased a '90s uh, Chevy Suburban may maybe contributing to that, because um, it is it's just a it's just kind of a squishy, uh, laid back um driving experience you just kind of you lean on the torque that the engine has there and not worry about going anywhere fast um and you can just pound over anything you've got big thick tires and lots of suspension travel so you have no fears of any potholes or anything which is really nice around here in the winter um i will say that i because it's got a lot of it, it's got a lot of decent goodness still baked into it. One of the big things is that it is actually a really quiet SUV, um, you know, except for the exhaust, and that's something that's easy to avoid. Just don't buy, just don't get the exhaust. Um, and you know, it handles decently. I would not be surprised if Bronco handles a little better, being a lot newer. Um, but what the Forerunner really could use, it, it really could use a new transmission. It still uses a five-speed automatic. And it's very smooth, but it's terrible for fuel economy, and it's not doing it any favors in acceleration either. Um, and I mean, like, it, this thing does not get good fuel economy. I, I think I have struggled to break 20 mpg. <laughs> with the forerunners that I've had. <laughs> um, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. In some ways, I'm almost surprised that 20 MPG is what you were getting. I mean, I've gotten probably worse than that in real world driving when I've been with the forerunner or the old Land Cruiser. Mm -hmm. So that that's a big thing. Um, and I think one of the other tricky things is that the TRD Pro starts at over $50,000, uh, which, I mean, you can spec out like a Wrangler Rubicon or a Bronco Sasquatch Badlands up pretty high too, but uh, it's one of these things where you can pick up a Lexus GX, a new one, for about like $3,000 more than a TRD Pro. Granted, you're not getting things like the Fox shocks and things, but you are getting a much more uh, pleasant and refined V8 engine instead of the V6. You're not really sacrificing much in fuel economy, even with the extra cylinders. Um, plus the GX. It does technically have a third row of seats available. Um they're not really fit for adult human consumption, but it is there if you really need it. Um, just gives you a little bit of flexibility there. Uh, and 
I mean, you get a nicer interior. Uh, so I kind of feel like if I was spending TRD Pro money, I would be considering stretching just a little bit further to get to a Lexus GX. Um, but obviously, one of the reasons, some of the reasons people get a Forerunner is they like the way it looks, and it did look really cool it, with the TRD Pro front bumper and stuff and the exclusive lime green paint uh it does look neat and uh you get like crawl you get the toyota crawl control system you also get on the uh trd pro it's got a old school like mechanical lever for engaging four-wheel drive it's that's directly connected to the transfer case like when it's sitting there idling, if you put your hand on that lever, you can feel it kind of vibrating because it's connected to it's actually connected to the transfer case. You don't have to worry about any switches going bad or vacuum lines uh, going bad. It's just a big old ka-chunk, ka-chunk lever to get it into four wheel drive. Yeah, that's that's actually funny. I'm a I'm a major coffee drinker. And the last time I drove the Forerunner, I would kept reaching down then i would just kind of you know reach over and brush that lever and you're like oh that's right this is a very mechanical experience you know it's definitely uh it's old school and i like it and i mean i like the forerunner it's definitely on the top 10 i would say of vehicles i would consider owning at some point it doesn't quite get into that top five list just for a variety of reasons um but you know i'm somebody who can like live with the compromises, the driving dynamics, um, the five-speed transmission, which is like probably Fred Flintstone's car had a better, you know, gearbox than that. Like, I mean, and there's some things I think Toyota could do as they evolve the 4Runner, if they're going to evolve the 4Runner, make it a little more modern. Um, you know, you got the Bronco out there. The Bronco drives really well in daily driving, better than the, the Wrangler, the Jeep Wrangler does in daily driving. And the Bronco has managed to achieve basically like, a, forgive the cliche, like a no compromises, you know, situation. Like there's no trade-off. You can drive up the side of a mountain in a Bronco, you know, but it's, it's easier to rip around a corner at 45 miles an hour on a Tuesday afternoon than it is in a Jeep or the Toyota. So, um, my guess is the 4Runner, like the now gone Land Cruiser, it's not going to get there. You know, this is what it's going to be until it becomes something else so it does strike me as weird though because i mean even the uh even the tacoma i believe that at least gets a six-speed automatic so i'm surprised that they haven't even just like said hey we'll just grab the tacoma transmission and drop it into the forerunner yeah it's definitely uh you know like i said i think there's some tweaks they could make that might get this up to speed a little bit more. Um, so we'll see. Did you, uh, did you go off-roading or do anything fun with it? No, just kind of drove about town. Um, and you were talking about that the Forerunner's high on your list. I'll admit, I think I would probably go with a Wrangler or a Bronco instead. Because um, I'm not hugely bothered by the kind of extra noise from not having just a permanently enclosed cabin and i mean the wrangler gets better fuel economy um even just in the regular v6 trim 
I would probably go with the four by E plug-in hybrid if it was my own money. Um, and then if I wasn't so worried about fuel economy, I'd go with the Bronco because the Bronco's quite a bit peppier <laughs> with its turbo engines. Well, notice I said top 10. I, if I were making like a hypothetical <laughs> list of things, it'd be like a fringe top 10. I might buy it just for my like kind of emotional connection to it and how much I think I would enjoy driving it. Yeah, I mean, both the domestics you just named are better in every area, you know, almost. So, you know, one of those would probably slot above it. But I don't know, that'd be a fun pod podcast segment. Your top 10 list of things you would buy in no particular order or for no budget, you know, I don't know. But yeah, cool. Well, I'm a little jealous. Um, I wish uh, that had come my way, but what has come my way is a GMC Sierra uh, AT4 in limited trim with the Eco Diesel. It's kind of an interesting truck, I think. You know, it's definitely not your standard, you know, V8 or V6 Sierra, that's for sure. Uh, the AT4 trim is kind of like a middle ground. You get like off-road stuff. It's jacked up pretty much. It's got those big like knobby tires. It's 18-inch uh, wheels. Uh, yeah, lots of off-road gear, that sort of thing. Um, it's not the cheapest Sierra, but it's not up there with more like the Denali's or even the AT4X, which obviously had cost and capability and things like this. This is a nice middle ground, you know, and it's uh, like I said, it's a very nice shade of holiday Christmassy red that kind of really sets the uh, sets the vibe. It's, uh, I mean, it's a nice truck. Like it really is. Like you just, you know, driving around town, people uh, have been looking at it. Which, you know, in this area, Metro Detroit, a domestic pickup truck does not stand out at all. You know, um, so you know, it's just you look at it and yeah, it's just really well done on all all accounts. Um, so for the turbo diesel, if you will, you're looking at about 30 miles per gallon uh, on the highway. I haven't done much highway driving, but it's, you know, it's there for me if I need it at some point this week. I imagine I probably will. Uh, 460 pound-feet of torque and 277 horsepower. I like that. You know, it's, this is, when General Motors rolled out the Eco Diesel, um, I've enjoyed it in a variety of vehicles. In the Suburban, uh, I had it in a Yukon at one point, um, in then now in the Sierra. It's, I think it's a good move for them. You know, it's it's plenty of grunt. You can tow up to nine thousand pounds. It's, you know, it, it has everything you need, and it's it's a little bit of a different drive. You know, driving dynamic, uh, a lot of low end torque, obviously, but it's not like like an old school diesel at all, where you're like, oh, I'm driving this like diesely you know thing in my truck it's it's definitely like a modern um you know torquey feel like i said and uh it it's i would say it's like sort of the highest evolution of diesel at this point you know that i've tested in a modern vehicle so um props to gm for kind of investing and in staying with the technology especially for their like their full-size trucks and suvs so i mean that that's been fun to drive uh Played around with the Multi uh, Pro tailgate. Uh, multi Flex is Chevy. I actually did a video for TikTok and had to do multiple takes because I kept mixing up which one was which. It's the same experiment or same capability, uh, which is which is nice. 
um, if you want it as an option. It's it's not that much money. I think it's only like it was like five ninety five six hundred bucks. I'm not sure if they've raised it or not, but if you want it, cool. You don't all good. Um, you know, just even having it for like uh like to put stuff on, like for tailgating or to step into the bed is kind of nice. So. I mean, yeah, it's just I've been enjoying my week in a, a full-size Sierra, you know, and you had the AT4 trim on there, which I haven't gone off-road with it yet, and um, the Eco Diesel too. It's just kind of like a, it's an interesting truck, let me put it that way. You know, a lot of things going on. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I I haven't really had the opportunity to drive the diesel all that much i've driven the um i've driven ram eco diesels um actually that's about it i haven't driven the uh i haven't driven the ford diesel either um but it does it it really does amaze me how good the fuel economy is on the gm diesel trucks and i think Mm -hmm. it's really cool that they offer it on the suvs too which I think is a really interesting selling point for them because at least in that segment, there's not really anything comparable because they, because Stellantis doesn't offer the eco diesel on the, on the Wagoneers and there's no diesel or hybrid options on expedition. So I think it, I think it's a neat. I think it's a neat selling point for them. I feel like I I should probably uh, correct something I've said earlier. I've been saying eco diesel. Eco diesel is like the trademark for Ram, GMC, General Motors, and Chevy. They use Duramax. That's their brand name. Obviously, uh, somehow eco diesel slipped into my subconsciousness. So if you are, which is probably Stellantis and Ram somewhere, like well, we did our job. We've got this guy subliminally thinking truck diesels and he's thinking of us but nope obviously these are duramax diesels um so you know there's that but regardless you know it's uh i think it's a nice option it's one of the things that if you want one of these now's probably the time to get one you know we're going to start to see like you know i think probably smaller displacement engines more electrification um i feel like diesel diesel kind of comes and goes you know it's like and it's sort of you know, different automakers really invest in it or they completely don't, you know, and right now General Motors has decided to get back into it. And I think that's been a good thing for them. Um, I don't know what the take rate is for these vehicles. It's not huge. You know, I did sit down with one of their chief engineers last fall when I had the Suburban and, you know, we, we mentioned, she mentioned that, hey, there's some you know, like a, a devoted, a core audience that's going to want this and everybody else is going to go with the gas trucks, um, which makes sense. So, yeah, I mean, that's the Sierra. I think, um, yeah, I'll say this, even the looks of the Sierra are kind of growing on me a little bit. Um, it, yeah, I don't know. For a while, I kind of thought, like when the Silverado launched a few years back now, there, there was some consternation, you know, because it's a pretty big departure from how the Silverado had looked for about 10 years. It was a little more curvy. The lights were a little bit smaller. So I think for a lot of people, the Sierra was your like more of your truck look, you know. Um, frankly, for me, the Silverado, I've, I've kind of come back to it. I kind of like the look. It's almost more of like a classic, like kind of 90s Chevy truck look where like 
you know, it's not as blocky. It's like the headlights are a little more downplayed. All of that is to say, um, for a while, I like the Silverado more Then I'm kind of like, eh, maybe I like the Sierra. But this Sierra, like I said, in AT4 and limited trim, looks good. You know, part of it is, is just everything works well. It's, you know, it's strong looking truck straight out of central casting. And sometimes I do think the Sierra gets lost in the canyon for that matter. They get lost in the Chevy shadow just because there's such overwhelming volume plays. But um, yeah, it's been a good week in this thing. We'll see. Uh, see what else? What else? I, what other adventures I get up to with it? So, um, yeah, let's swing things over to our final car of this segment, which is the Hyundai Palisade long-term update. What have you been doing with the Hyundai Palisade? Not a huge amount. Mostly just kind of odd trips to the grocery store and things. Uh, it's still it's still really nice. I mean. There's not, it doesn't really have many weak points, really. It's very quiet. It's very comfortable. It handles decently well. The V6 makes good power and sounds pretty good. Transmission is smooth and shifts promptly. It's got a nice interior. Um, it actually was kind of funny, though. Uh, something that I forgot to mention about the Forerunner, uh, Forerunner's got really good seats, um, mm. really like thick cushioning, good shaping. Uh, and actually, when I got into the Palisade afterward, I was like, oh, this feels slightly flat and thin compared to the Forerunner seats. Um, I've never really thought of that otherwise. So, I mean, like the Palisade has pretty decent seats, but it, it, it was funny coming out of the Forerunner. It's like, oh. I think I actually prefer the seats in the Forerunner. Um, I've really, I really appreciated having a remote start on our long-term Palisade the last couple of weeks because um, it's gotten pretty cold around here. And something, a little thing that I noticed that I really appreciate about it is that the key fob has a little indicator light on it. So, like when you press lock and stuff, it'll it'll light up to indicate that you've um that it's received the message uh at the car and it does that also with remote start so like you lock it and then you hold the remote start button and when the little light flashes that indicates that the car has started and you can confirm that looking outside because there have been a number of times that i've had cars with remote start that there's nothing at all on the key to indicate whether you've actually successfully remote started the car so oftentimes I'll find myself staring out the window with the key fob, waiting to see the lights flash on it, um, which can be kind of annoying because it's like I just because <laughs> in some ways it doesn't feel it feels less convenient. It, it feels closer to like if I just went outside to go and start it. Um, I mean, this is this is a super first world problem kind of thing, but it's really convenient that the Hyundai has it. I can be anywhere in the house and I can just check the key fob to make sure that it's actually started instead of having to go find a window and look at the car to make sure that it started. That's funny. I've been doing that with the, uh, not the eco diesel, the Duramax diesel. I almost said it again there this week, but with the GMC, like, you know, you know, when that thing starts up, 
but uh, I hear you. And that's it's kind of like a nice little thing, you know. I mean, like you said, it's a first world problem. But one thing I was actually doing for a while uh, is I would back when we were going to the office every day, I would maybe leave my keys upstairs. So it's like right before you jump in the shower, hit the car, get it started. Then when you come downstairs, your car's warmed up, and you don't have to worry about getting into a car when you're still maybe a little, you know, not fully dried off or something. So uh, that's kind of a neat feature. Mm-hmm. So the Palisade has been here a while. I mean, how how you feeling? You know, it's it's going to be with us, I think, into the early spring. But you know, it's it's days are going to we're on the back nine with the Palisade. So I don't know how, how are you feeling about it as an auto blog long termer. I mean, it's been really good. Um, like like I said, it it doesn't really have any weak points. I mean, and that's kind of that's kind of why. I felt like that and the Telluride have sort of been like the number one choices for like a big three row crossover because they look good. They've got nice interiors. They drive well. Um, they're priced well. Like, like they do, ev- they do everything well. Um, and there's really not much uh, downside. Um, I will say it's not, as fuel efficient as I would like it to be. Um, I was looking at our fuel economy numbers and it does look like it is mostly holding up to EPA numbers, but around town, it's pretty thirsty. Um, a lot of the time I've been getting like 16 or 17 around town. Um, which I don't know. Like I, I know it is a big car with a decent size V6, but I I just kind of feel like we should be a little bit farther ahead than that. It would I would really like to see um, Hyundai Kia roll out some kind of hybrid version of these SUVs, especially because the Toyota Highlander hybrid, which is not a paragon of refinement, I've driven it, and the engine can be kind of thrashy. But it does get impressively good fuel economy for being as big as it is. And also when you have things like the Sienna, which is a hybrid, and the Pacifica hybrid, which um, are like if you're hauling a family or hauling lots of stuff, I mean, you should you should be considering a minivan in addition to a crossover SUV. I mean, those will those get far better fuel economy. And the Pacifica is actually quite the, is actually a pretty refined powertrain since the V6 hybrid. Yeah, um, I, would, I would agree with that. Yeah, so so yeah, I uh, I'd like it to be a little bit more efficient, but that's kind of really the only one big complaint. A um, couple other like minor notes that are like super specific and not really a reason not to get it, but. Uh, I helped a friend move out of a dorm room um, a couple months ago and took the Palisade to help move the mini fridge out of his uh, dorm room, which is a fairly tall one. Um, and we couldn't we couldn't fit it upright in the back of it. Uh, we had to lay it down on its side, <clears throat> which I was like. Boy, this is a big the crossover SUV. Surely it'll it'll fit standing up. It's like nope. Um, and also, uh, I don't know. Maybe this should be a maybe this should be <laughs> an op-ed that I write at some point. But 
I kind of miss having second row bench seats um, for the very specific reason that uh, the dogs that I have owned have been on the, on the larger side and don't fit that great on a captain's chair for long distances. <laughs> they have a hard time laying down. Um, and to like create sort of a platform across the two captain's chairs is not is not a very easy or convenient thing. Um, so, uh, so I'm actually kind of a fan of uh, bench seats <laughs> in the second row, but I do understand that for for human passengers, the captain's seats are usually more comfortable and provide better access to the third row. Yeah, my dog would just ride shotgun. Or she would lay like in front of or between the captain's chairs, depending on how everything was all set up. But um, she's a pretty big dog. Golden retrievers take up space. But mm-hmm. I hear you. Bench seat for the dog. That's when like they're really living like, you know, living large. When you get a nice like good old bench seat for the dog. So I hear you. Um, we'll see. I mean, it's like I said, I, I hope to get into it one more time. Uh, we've certainly put the miles on this Palisade. It's been to North Carolina twice, I think. Uh, I forget if it's actually been to Florida or not. I think that was our minivan, the Pacifica, we had a couple years ago. Made a couple trips to Florida. Um, may have been to the East Coast, um, but that's the idea here is, you know, we use them, we experience them, check out our long-term coverage because we've got some some kind of weird issues with it too. So, check that out rodents have been friends with it that's been a problem but um yeah that's a long-term palisade let's uh, head on over to the v12 bmw 7 series this is uh the last one there will not be another one m760i gonna roll off the line in june of this year uh you might be actually almost the headline here is almost like you might be surprised to know you can still get a V12 BMW 7 Series. You, you really can't get one of these, but they were making them well into this new modern century, you know, long after V12s have gone out of any sort of like mainstream application. I was just pulling up the driver's notes we did about, geez, four and a half years ago here, uh, five years ago almost. Yeah, we had a M760 with the V12 in the fleet uh, back in August of 17. So, um, many of us have actually driven a version of this car. Um, it, to me, it's just a wild thing, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's get this or maybe get an Alpina if you're looking for something truly unique uh, and you're like you want to drive your 7 Series. So, um, you know, definitely different spin on the executive sedan. Were you ever a V12 guy there, Joel, or are you more of like an Alpina or go with one of the turbo options? What do you think? Yeah, I, I mean, I like a good V12 and like a supercar or something, but especially nowadays, I, uh, I don't know. I guess I don't have a whole lot of love lost for the V12 executive sedan because because um, I, I drove that 760 uh, that we had and it is 760, right? Not 750. 60, that's right. 
Okay. <laughs> um, and the whole time I was like, you know, it. I would be hard pressed to tell at all what engine was under the hood of that thing. Because it was so quiet and smooth. And like modern twin turbo V8s are also very quiet and very smooth. And yeah, yeah it was one of those things where it, it didn't really feel like it really contributed to the driving experience. Um, especially when the Alpina with the V8 makes like about the same power and costs like $20,000 less. Um, and frankly, I think the Alpina looks nicer. It, it really felt like you're spending a lot of money to have the badges and to tell people that I have the V12 one, which I understand is a thing that rich people like to do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the whole time I was just like, I, this doesn't really feel like it's doing anything to make this a better car. And if it's not doing that, I don't see the point. I'm not, I'm not necessarily swayed by, Ooh, I have the badges and I have the money. <laughs> yeah. I am looking through our old notes here and it, uh, this is an expensive car we had here. It's a hundred. The one we tested was one seventy nine five ninety five. Uh, zero to 60 in 3.6 seconds, which honestly, that sounds a little, eh, all right, sure. I'll believe that. Driving the 7 Series is like driving a very large, almost ocean liner in some ways, despite the fact that it does handle pretty well. I've driven it on a couple of tracks, believe it or not. 6.6 uh, .6 liter twin turbo V12. 600 horsepower, 590 pound feet of torque is what we had through the fleet. Um, you know, like I said, four and a half years ago. Pretty wild. Um, yeah, I mean, it's like a dinosaur. It's going extinct. That's what's happening. And that's, you know, that's what's going on. Uh, I would agree with you. I would get the Alpina because it's a better execution. Now, I actually happen to really like what Alpina does to uh, many BMWs. I think they're very uh, classy. They're different. Um, I will say this. It's tough to like, if like you're a BMW person, and you can say, hey, I have a V12. I mean, that is kind of awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, I haven't gone over the list of the number of V12s that I see out there, but uh, it's very short. So, yeah. And I think, I actually kind of think that maybe part of the reason that it didn't really feel that different is the fact that it is a twin turbo V12. Yeah. And the turbos tend to dominate the, uh, the character of the engine when they show up like if it was a naturally aspirated v12 i think that would make it a much more interesting and more uh unique experience that might be worth the extra money it probably wouldn't make the same kind of power and and that would probably be the issue is that some rich guy would walk into the bmw dealer and see that the v12 one is less powerful than the v8 one and be like well i'm gonna buy the v8 one <laughs> Because you've got to have the bigger number. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's not even the horsepower. It's just V12. You know, like that's where you're kind of like, you know, it's just such, it's a rare engine. When you tell me what's in a V12, I'm thinking of like a v, V12 Phaeton or something, you know, or like a Duesenberg, you know, 
Um, I digress. Let's go to the present tense here. And uh, Bollinger announced last week they're going to shift from basically a consumer strategy to more of a commercial strategy. They're actually going as far as refunding the deposits of people who put money down for their um, sort of like everyday consumer vehicles. Um, I was a little bit surprised to see this. Uh, check out the story by our green editor, John Snyder. Um, you know, obviously they're trying to do something to essentially make their company viable, you know, go with the scale, do the commercial work, and then perhaps add the, you know, the, like the public sales later on. Makes sense. Um, you know, they were very forward. You can check out Robert Bullinger's videos on, you know, on Instagram. And I think we have some stuff like that embedded in our story, but, um, you know, that's the economic side of it. For me, I'm a little sad because I thought it was a really cool, cool truck, cool truck and SUV. You know, it was sort of like uh, if you were looking for that kind of really old school, like even more old school than the Forerunner type of look, um, that was out there. So I think this is a smart move on their part. And I think, yeah. the main, I think, I think the main thing being that in the consumer space, the legacy automakers are now offering basically the look and feel of what they were going to offer, but with all of the all of the modern amenities of modern vehicles, because <laughs> the the Bollinger vehicles were basically like a steel box on a yeah. electric driving platform, um, which there's. And they they implemented some neat design details, but if you want like an old school looking SUV, well, in addition to the Wrangler, now you've got the Bronco to pick from. And if you want an electric pickup truck, uh, if you just need like a workhorse, you can buy the F-150 um, Lightning. Or if you want like a flashy, off-roady, unique looking thing, the Hummer is coming out very soon. Um, so why would you spend as much, if not a whole lot more for something far more, uh, basic, I hesitate to say crude, but, uh, I mean, they, they were, they were, they're no frills designs. Um, it's. Yeah, I I don't think they would have I don't think they would fare particularly well with what's coming out very quickly from established automakers with established dealer networks for less money <laughs> with more amenities and safety features and I think this is a smart move for them um, and I hope it turns out well because I it does kind of feel like even the even the commercial space is starting to get kind of crowded with electric possibilities. Rivian is making vans for Amazon. GM is working on vans. Um, and even like Ford and Stellantis have electric versions of their commercial vans, uh, both for sale overseas and could probably implement them pretty easily in the U.S., you know, I would agree with you. I think Bollinger's play, I remember actually, I think I wrote the first story on them. Like, you know, again, we're really going back to 2017 in this podcast. Um, 
it was just this really cool, almost like luxury item. You know what I mean? Just really something special, something different. So, you know, I, I, I do kind of wonder how you're going to translate that to the commercial space. Because I always thought maybe they can be almost like this expensive retro like toy, you know. Uh, so, we'll see. And if they're not going to do that, you know, I, I do kind of wonder what they're going to do in the commercial space. They have a plan, you know. Hopefully, they can, you know, iron it out. But um, it's definitely a big pivot for the company and, you know, how they were originally positioned. And, hey, that's what you got to do. I mean, um, once again, going back to 2017, it's, you know, a lot of things have happened since then. You know, you mentioned all the different companies from Rivian to Ford to Chevy that now have plans for electric trucks. You know, it, it just shows how quickly this business moves and how you have to be able to adapt. And, you know, you, you never know where your competitors are going to come from. Yeah. And I do think like if they do kind of focus on sort of like chassis cab type stuff that can be easily reconfigured for different needs, um, yeah. whether it's like a moving truck or um, like a utility, like a utility truck for like a power company or something, stuff like that. Uh, I think that's a, I think there's some potential there especially yeah. uh, like slightly heavier duty kind of things. And I think that is kind of what they're looking at. Um, I, I think, I think that could be good for them because most of, because it does feel like a lot of the legacy automakers are looking at sort of slightly lighter duty vans. Um, and at least like in terms of the F-150 Lightning, it, it only comes in one cab and bed configuration right now. And the Chevy Silverado electric truck—that's a that's a unibody truck, so that's not really reconfigurable very easily. Um, so, I think they have an opportunity. Hopefully, I hope they move fairly quickly because I, I think that'll be kind of a key thing. All right. So we were mentioning old Toyota SUVs earlier. The Forerunner, the Sequoia. We're going to see a new one coming up uh, in the coming weeks. There's a teaser out this week. Um, you know, it's obviously a lucrative segment, and Toyota has not invested much in the Sequoia in years. So, uh, what do we know about this so far, Joel? So, we don't know a whole lot. Um, in fact, Toyota was even kind of cagey about actually saying that the teaser was for the Sequoia when they first put it out. But um, there were a couple of hints, including one that was only visible when you were playing with the brightness and exposure on the photo that made it very clear that it was the Sequoia. Um, and it's, it is an SUV that I would say is long, long overdue for a replacement. Um, like the current one is, I believe even older than the forerunner is and has received fewer facelifts and updates. Uh, I drove one a little bit off-road when I went down to Toyota last summer for their big, what I've referred to as their Toyota-thon, um, where they just told us like everything they were like launching for the coming year. And I drove it, and I was, I was not impressed. Like, the Forerunner feels well put together and has reasonably decent materials but the the sequoia 
it feels cheap in almost every sense. Of the word. It feels cheap and old in almost every sense of the word. Um, and like it's based on the old Tundra, but it never even got the like interior updates that the Tundra got or anything like that. Uh, so it's a really old thing. Um, the new version, we are expecting it to be based on the new Tundra. Um, just kind of like the old one. Um, and it sounds like it will be built at the San Antonio, Texas plant alongside the Tundra. So that would also lead us to believe that it's derived from the pickup truck. Now, based on the old Sequoia, which had fully independent suspension front and rear, which, dif which was significantly different from the Tundra, we're guessing that that will continue to be the case, that it'll, the new one will still have independent suspension, um, which would also put it uh, on par with the Tahoe and the Expedition, both of which feature independent suspension. It should get the twin-turbo V6. Um, we don't know yet if it will have just the regular twin-turbo V6 or if it'll be available with the hybrid. I think if they offer the hybrid, that would be a very interesting selling point, um, kind of like we were talking about with the diesel engine on the GM trucks. Um, but that's that's kind of the extent of what we know. Uh, it will be revealed um, this coming Tuesday, uh, January 25th. So we don't have long to wait. Um, and they only just launched, they only just put out teaser images this week. So it's going to be a quick turnaround. We're not going to, we're not going to be waiting around for months wondering when we're going to see it. So be sure to tune into Autoblog next week when <laughs> we have coverage on the new SUV. Well, um, well said, I would say. <laughs> and I mean, we're expecting it to be available with three rows of seats like the current one. Uh, we have yet to see whether they'll offer it in two different wheelbases like Tahoe and Expedition um, and their long counterparts, the Suburban Expedition Max, I think is. Yeah. Is Expedition Max or Because for a while, I think they called it the EL. Um, and that was after they discontinued the excursion and made the long version of the expedition anyway i'm kind of i'm digressing a little bit but yeah so should be interesting to see how that pans out yeah i think it's, it's a crowded segment you know um you know there's a lot of good things in there everything from the grand wagoneer to the uh you know the tahoe to the, you know the expedition it's, it's definitely a segment that's lucrative uh, if you're going to be there, I think it's smart for Toyota to go ahead and invest in it and try and make something that's credible. It'll also be interesting to see uh, what they do for kind of off-road capability and stuff. Since they're discontinuing the Land Cruiser here in the States, um, it'll be interesting to see if they try and make the Sequoia kind of fill that space a little bit more for them. Because it used to be that, like, well, it was okay if, like, Sequoia wasn't quite the full-on off-roader that the Land Cruiser was, because we had the Land, because there was the Land Cruiser. But now that's gone, and so there's a little bit of room for something interesting to show up in that area. I think that's a very logical move. Uh, Sequoia with uh, some TRD parts on it sounds kind of interesting to me. I'll be very 
um, intrigued to see what, you know, what they can pull off here. So uh, tune in next week. Uh, if you enjoy the Auto Blog podcast, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your Spend My Monies. That's podcast at autoblog.com. Or if you have any mailbag questions, you want to know more about whether it's the Sequoia, the Forerunner, any questions about our long-term cars, or whatever is going on in the industry, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining me this week, Joel. Everybody be safe out there. We'll see you next week. 